0: Alright, as we mentioned at the end of the last segment, according to economic experts, the value of the reefs in Hawaii is between $30 and $172 billion. How they came up with those numbers, I don't know. But this invites a discussion uh, based on something sent to us by Pablo. Under the heading of RP Fodder, I observed a a four-part series, or at least it's a four-part, I think, and counting series in The Economist magazine about why you shouldn't trust economists, (laughs) which frankly I have to give the magazine all the credit in the world for running, but I was especially taken with the fourth installment of the series, which, uh, which opened up as follows, a cynic, says one of Oscar Wilde's characters, is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. But as philosophers have long known, assigning values to things or situations is fraught. Like the cynic, economists often assume that prices are all anyone needs to know. This biases many of their conclusions, to which we would add, duh, and limits their relevance to some of the most serious issues facing humanity. Yes, we have pointed this out on the program before and glad to see The Economist getting on board. The editors went on to note that the problem of value has lurked in the background ever since the dismal science's origins. Around the time Adam Smith published his Wealth of Nations, Jeremy Bentham laid out the basis of a utilitarian approach in which, quote, it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong, end quote. In the late 19th century, Alfred Marshall declared the correct focus of economics to be the, quote, attainment and use of material requisites of well-being, unquote. Or as his student, Arthur Pigot, put it, that part of social welfare that can be bought directly or indirectly into relationship with the measuring rod of money. All right, then. The good people at The Economist go on to note that equating money with value is in many cases a necessary expedient. People make transactions with money, of one form or another, rather than utility or happiness. They go on to note, the measuring rod itself often causes trouble. Not every dollar is of equal value, for instance. You might think that if two economists were forced to bid on an apple, the winner would desire the apple more, and the auction would thereby have found the best welfare-maximizing use for the apple. But the evidence suggests that money has diminishing marginal value. The more you have, the less you value an extra dollar. The winner might therefore end up with the apple, not because it will bring him more joy, but because his greater wealth meant that his bid is less of a sacrifice. To which we would again add, duh, the economist notes that economists are aware of this problem. It features for example in debates about the link between income and happiness across countries. But the profession is surprising profession, right? That the profession is surprisingly casual about its potential implications. For example, that as inequality rises, the price mechanism may do a worse job of allocating resources. They note that in a speech back in 1968, the late Robert Kennedy complained that measures of our output Include spending on cigarette advertisements, napalm, and the like, while omitting the quality of children's health and education. Despite efforts to improve such statistics, these problems remain. A dollar spent on financial services or a pricey medical test counts toward GDP, whether or not it contributes to human welfare. Social costs, such as pollution, are omitted. Anyway, it's an interesting little essay. Later on, it, they note that psychological research suggests that nudging people to think in terms of money when they make a choice encourages a business-like mindset that is less trusting and generous. Anyway, they close by noting, as we have noted on this program previously, that several organizations, including the European Commission and the World Bank, now publish data series presenting a more comprehensive picture of social health. But they note that the costs to us of the standard approach are growing. Price is a poor measure of the value of digital goods and services which are often paid for by giving access to data. And speaking of Facebook, no, just kidding. I think we're going to give Mr. Zuckerberg a bit of a break today. Not that he deserves one. Well, we're not going to totally give him a break. We're going to cite the article in Mother Jones by Andy Kroll titled Cloak and Data, Inside the Rise and Fall of Cambridge Analytica. Actually, I just read this this afternoon, and um, this, one, this one is worth taking a little extra time to do, which I don't think I'm going to devote today's show to. Mother Jones takes the position that Cambridge Analytica, at least as it originally got started, uh, uh, oversold itself. Their, their, their uh, CEO... Alexander Nix was noted for being quite the BS artist in what he promised politicians on what he could do for them. It appears he overstated the case when you take a look back at uh, what he did for various people like Ted Cruz, which means that the story of Cambridge Analytica and the 2016 election uh, with or without Russian involvement is, um, as you might imagine, a little more complicated than, than the press is portraying. Are they guilty of crimes against uh, the American electorate aided and abetted by Facebook? Well, we think so. But in discussing this, we should be a little bit more precise than I'm prepared to be right now. So let us postpone that discussion. Let's do some other tech bashing instead. According to the technology section of the week, uh, no frills phones are back. Brian Chen writing in the New York Times... Noted that the budget phone is making a comeback given that the latest iterations of both Apple's and Samsung's flagship smartphones are flirting with the $1,000 mark. He notes that plenty of consumers are deciding they don't want to splurge on a fancy phone every few years. So they're going retro and finding that cheaper phones have never been better. Noting that in an age when everyone seems glued to a screen, the humble flip phone in particular is turning into a statement of protest and individuality. That's according to Scott Enman writing in the Seattle Times. And one of the main complaints we've had about Silicon Valley and the tech industry is the fact that it's been given this huge tax break by the federal government, which then affected state governments and local governments about taxing goods moved on the internet. And we were under the impression that, uh, there was, there were efforts recently to, uh, ...to allow taxation for things sold on the Internet. And I know that there are some cases along that line. Again, we're not lawyers here. But uh, this matter is far from settled. Article in USA Today on April 17th on this very topic... ...under the headline, Internet Sales Tax Fight Reaches Supreme Court... ...well, let me just quote from author Richard Wolf. Eric Sinclair's family-owned furniture business dates back five generations and 130 years... These days, he figures his three stores in eastern South Dakota operate at a 6.5% disadvantage to competitors who sell only online. At least once a week, he says, a customer who's already been helped with a product selection and room design in one of his Montgomery showrooms brings up prices found on the internet, where sellers often don't tack on state and city sales taxes. They want to know if if we can beat those prices, Sinclair said. It really puts me on an unlevel playing field. Well, yes, indeed. There's an argument being made before the United States Supreme Court that some legal rulings that date back 50 years need to be changed. Those rulings exempted so-called remote retailers from having to pay sales taxes in other states. Mail order catalog companies were the main beneficiaries. Amazon.com had not yet begun selling books out of Jeff Bezos' garage. But they note times have changed. South Dakota, in court papers, said, Today, online sales are growing at four times the rate of total retail sales, and state and local governments in 45 states are losing billions of dollars annually in taxes. They do note that Alaska, Delaware, Montana, New Hampshire, and Oregon do not have sales taxes. The piece notes that when the court ruled back in 1967 and again in 1992 that Illinois and North Dakota could not squeeze sale taxes from sellers with no presence in those states, there wasn't nearly as much at stake. Now, consumers do nearly 10% of their shopping online, a share that will grow exponentially in the future. So as I recall when we talked about the Forbes 400 or whatever the heck it was some time ago, Jeff Bezos came in at number one. Richest guy in America. It seems rather probable that Mr. Bezos would not be rolling in quite so much dough if his company had to pay more in the way of sales taxes so that we might have better roads in California, for example. Personally, I've always been a big fan of bookstores. And uh, a mile from where I live, there used to be a Barnes & Noble. Thanks to Amazon and others, that closed. They're still in business, Barnes & Noble, but now I have to drive 19 miles, either to the east or west, to find a nearby store. Nearby, in quotes. And if you're a listener, you know something about this matter more than we do, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. In fact, if you're listening and you hear us say something that uh, you think you know more about than we do, which is fairly probable at any given hour, again, drop us a line. Info at radioparallax.com. And uh, let's just not bash American tech companies. Let's let's attack some Russian ones as well. Turns out a Russian startup has created a new way to help companies connect with job seekers and interview them. Her name is Vera. She's able to interview as many as 1,500 job candidates in a single workday. Her secret, of course, is not being human. Officially known as Robot Vera... The master recruiter is an an artificially intelligent software technology that uses machine learning, allowing her to refine her approach. Vera is currently being employed by several hundred Russian companies. And apparently they've gotten IKEA interested in Vera. Now it turns out the candidates get to ask Vera questions as well. Uh, Her makers claim that she can respond accurately 82% of the time. And yes, we would dearly love to see some of the exchanges that make up the other 18%. Well, frankly, we're really not sure how good an idea Vera is going to turn out to be. But I feel pretty certain that Uber's new bright ideas is not going to pan out so well. Uber is putting together a drone, a giant drone, large enough to carry humans. And yes, they are calling it a flying car prototype. As far as we're concerned, if you're not tooling down the highway in this thing, it ain't a car. It's a drone. And speaking as a licensed private pilot, I see the opportunities for mischief in this to be, well, just unlimited. According to the bright sparks at Uber, these flying vehicles would fly 1,000 to 2,000 feet above us, at speeds of hundred and fifty to two hundred miles an hour. As we put on this program in the past, if you've got a hundred pound drone three hundred feet above you and the engine conks out, well that's a bit of a problem. If a giant human toting drone two thousand feet above you conks out the engine, well you've got a substantially larger problem. And we hope in this instance that someone's gonna put the brakes on this lame-brained idea. And in other bad transportation ideas, in this case not related to high-tech, we have this. Writing in the Washington Post, Peter Hawley said that after more than a century-long run, automakers like Ford can no longer escape the obvious. Demand for traditional cars is beginning to dry up. Ford announced last week it plans to walk away, walk away from its U.S. passenger sedan business after years of declining sales eliminating the Fiesta, Fusion, Taurus, and C-Max models. Aside from Mustang sports cars, so-called sports cars, and new Focus crossover, and a battery electric line due in 2022, the Detroit automaker's lineup will soon be composed entirely of trucks and SUVs. Mr. Miller, I think it's time for that sound effect. And I'm very tempted to read from a piece in New York Magazine titled, An Apology for the Internet from the People Who Built It. But I don't have the heart today. I'm going to put that in the pile here next to the Mother Jones article and postpone that a week. Let's, Let's do something a little more fun and light, shall we? Like one of our traditional favorites here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Corner of the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple of weeks back for telling it like it is, Trump administration style, with the news that Trump administrative official Mick Mulvaney has urged bank executives to increase their donations to, in, order to, to, in order to secure favorable legislation. Speaking about his own time in the U.S. Congress, Mulvaney said, if you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I didn't talk to you. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for education at least in great britain with the news that some british schools are switching entirely to digital clocks as fewer and fewer students know how to tell time from analog clocks which causes us to pause and say this is a school right where kids learn things right you teach them things right Think you got some time in your busy day of education to include telling time? This dovetails with the news that a lot of schools are stopping any education as regards cursive, which we would presume at some point in the not-too-distant future will render things handwritten as indecipherable to young people as Egyptian hieroglyphics, which, it must be admitted, will offer a certain advantage to old folks like us, a secret language we can communicate in that young people can't read. This does raise the question of what are they teaching in schools? Which allows us to segue into the fact that we think it was an ugly week for the educational millennials recently with the news that Penn State University has banned its venerable outing club from taking outdoor trips on the grounds that they're too dangerous. The club, which was founded in 1920, has logged tens of thousands of miles of student-led hiking, canoeing, and camping expeditions. But after, quote, an assessment of risk risk management, unquote, Penn State announced that the club's activities are above the university's threshold of acceptable risk. There's no denying the fact that hiking, canoeing, and camping does entail a certain amount of risk, more so than, say, sitting in your dorm room playing video games. And we would like to add that it was both a bad and ugly week a couple of weeks back for Massachusetts school children with the news that at least one Massachusetts preschool has banned children from using the term best friend. Parent Christina Hartwell says she learned about the ban from her four-year-old daughter who'd come home sad from her day at the Pentucket Workshop preschool. When the Hartwells complained, school officials explained that best friend, even when used in a loving way, can lead other children to feel excluded. Ms. McMillan? And finally, well, it was depending on how you look at it, a good and bad and ugly week a couple of weeks back for, I guess we'd call it, outdoor activities, although in this case not related to Penn State University. The outdoor activities in this case surround a swimming pool. In this case, it involves the activities of a Mateusz Fielkowski We would note, sadly, that Mr. Fielkowski tried to drown himself in the swimming pool Located in Virginia, he was pulled out by the cops for his part, Mr. Fiakowski says he is grateful to police officers who rescued him after he tried to kill himself, but he blames them for not diving in until he swallowed a lot of water and reportedly went into cardiac arrest to which he said i don't thank them for, i don't thank them for letting me die clinically before their eyes uh, should this lawsuit Proof successful, I suspect that in the future, some law enforcement officers may be just a little slower in responding. All right, and let's cycle back to one item of good news. All the articles cited in today's program do come from The Week magazine. The Week labeled this one, a good week for being reborn. With the news that the Swedish pop group ABBA has emerged from a 35-year retirement with new songs and plans for a digital world tour featuring four holographic avatars modeled on the 1979 version of the group. Said Bjorn Ulvelis, one of the bees in ABBA, We thought we looked good that year. In the four minutes or so we have left, let's talk about a couple of fads. Writing in the San Francisco Chronicle, Steve Rubenstein noted that there's a revolutionary new way to walk through a forest. It's called forest bathing. At least that's what New Age types are calling it. It's become a full-blown movement in Northern California's Sonoma County. The new pastime doesn't involve water. You simply amble among the trees very very slowly, and soak up nature's wonders with all your senses. Evidently, Mr. Rubinstein paid fifty dollars to join a dozen other forest bathers at Quarry Hill Botanical Gardens, where his guide, Amos Clifford, encouraged zen like mindfulness, saying, Examine all twigs, inspect all leaves. If you see an ant, stop and take it in. You know, I'd be careful about this. I once took an ant in, and he ate all of my cereal. Oh, thanks for the rim shot. Anyway, Rubenstein said at one point Clifford asked us to converse with a tree, (laughs) which he noted after 20 minutes of such dialogue, much of it one-sided, we sat down together to share what we'd learned. You know, I shouldn't be too hard on this. I think you should go out into your yard and take a look at the life that you can find under a rock. I find that sort of stuff interesting. As a child I was amused by and to this day I still remain entertained by pill bugs. They roll up in such perfect little balls. And I'm happy to show off my UC Davis biological sciences education by noting for you dear listener that they are not insects. Neither are they arachnids or centipedes or millipedes. The common pill bug and its cousin the sow bug are in fact land-based crustaceans like lobsters and crabs. And uh, one fad that is currently sweeping certain sections of the US and Europe and I presume Asia is a kind of modern renovation of an old tradition. The tradition being that of walking the Camino in Iberia. Pardon Some start in France and walk across the top of Spain. Some start in Portugal and head north to Galicia. The end point of the journey is Santiago de Compostela. This is considered one of Christendom's holiest sites. Apparently this modern fad got a huge shot in the arm when Martin Sheen did it back in like 2010 and made a movie about it. And I guess Shirley MacLaine did it as well and talked about it on late night TV. And I have to confess, I am somewhat puzzled by my various Unitarian, Atheist, and Jewish friends making a Catholic pilgrimage, especially one that venerates Santiago, otherwise known as St. James the Apostle. Those who make this sometimes 500-mile-long trek, if you start in France, are greeted at the end of their journey by a statue in the cathedral, at Santiago de Compostela of St. James, the disciple of Jesus. In the statue, he's mounted on horseback, about to bring a sword down upon three moors, which his horse is trampling. Moors, of course, are Muslims. Nestled among the three trampled moors is the severed head of a fourth one, who apparently has been visited by the sword of St. James the Apostle of Jesus. Santiago, who is considered the patron saint of Spain, is also known as Matamoros, the Moor Killer. I think it's fair to say this scene certainly does not depict Christian charity. If you do travel to Spain, you will note that Matamoros, killing Moors, is a common theme in Spanish art during the Crusades against Muslim rule. The story of how... Jesus' disciple is, in Spanish eyes, a guy cutting off the heads of Moors, is a tale that's, well, shall we say, shaky. In Christian accounts, James, later St. James, was apparently beheaded in Jerusalem by King Herod Agrippa in about 44 AD, apparently the first of many Christian martyrs. By some traditions, he made his way west to Spain and upon encountering the ghost of the Virgin Mary, was told to go back to Judea. Some question this. In the 800s, King Ramiro of Asturias, a Christian battling the Muslim armies, swore that James appeared at the Battle of Clavijo, this is in 844, and personally slaughtered 60,000 Saracens. Over the next six centuries, the saint reportedly manifested himself at 40 battles, even participating in the massacre of some American Indians in the New World. Now, in the Spanish telling of all this, after he was killed back in Jerusalem, two of James's followers brought his body to Jaffa, the seaport in the Mediterranean, where a boat appeared with neither sails nor crew. It carried him to Patron, 20 kilometers downstream from Santiago. That journey took a week. This has been described as a detail that might raise an eyebrow if previous ones did not, since the English travel writer Richard Ford remarked in his 1845 handbook for travelers in Spain, the Oriental Steam Company can do nothing like it. Now, if Uber had been around then, they could have sent a driverless boat to Jaffa. Anyway, to continue this cockamamie story, the body of St. James was evidently lost and forgotten about for seven and a half centuries, at which point the Christians and Muslims were fighting it out in Spain. Evidently, a hermit then followed a star to recover the lost body of St. James. The hill where the body was found was known as Compostela, from the Latin stella," meaning field of the star. Centuries later, during the Reconquista, which point the Moors were actually kicked out of Spain, the cult of Santiago began what is arguably Europe's first exercise in mass tourism. Now, how it is, out of this spicy stew, uh, various Americans and Europeans are going over to Europe to become medieval pilgrims and find spiritual salvation? Well, Radio Parallax just, just doesn't know. Maybe we'll have insights in the future, maybe not. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. If you are hearing this on KDVS, please consider making a pledge to the station. The last pledge drive only raised $40,000 for the station, and frankly, it needs a bit more. So, contributions are welcome all year round. Please do what you can. And the same goes for you folks who may be listening to us on KZFR in Chico. It is our great privilege to continue terrestrial broadcasting on both of these fine institutions. We'll see you next week at the same time.